Father God, it is an incredible privilege to have the Bible in our hands, in a language that we can understand, where we can hear your voice today as you speak to us by your Holy Spirit as we study these words. Please do that now. Prepare our hearts. Open our eyes so we may see what it means to live for you today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So how is your knowledge of obscure United Kingdom law? Did you know that it is illegal to enter the Houses of Parliament wearing a suit of armour? It is illegal to carry a plank along a pavement. It is illegal to fire a cannon within 300 yards of somebody's house. Uh, It is illegal to beat or shake a carpet or rug in the street, with the exception of a doormat, which you can shake before 8am in the morning only, but not afterwards. Uh, It is illegal to put a washing line across the street. It is illegal to sing profane or obscene songs or ballads in the street. And it is illegal to willfully and wantonly disturb people by ringing their doorbells and running away. (laughs) Just so you know. Now, some of these seem to make more sense than others. Some are sort of left on the statute book from previous generations, and they've never been repealed. Uh, The one about not wearing a suit of armour in Parliament dates from 1313. And if those sorts of laws make us uh, laugh a bit or roll our eyes or feel a bit confused, how much more do many people find parts of the Old Testament law outdated, irrelevant, comic at times, and sometimes even a little offensive to 21st century secular ears? So hold, hold that thought as we turn to the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus has been teaching about what life in the kingdom of God looks like. If you've been here, we've seen his mouth-watering manifesto, particularly those mouth-watering beatitudes, what life in the kingdom is meant to look like. We've heard the challenge to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. And and do you notice something striking? There's been a total absence of rules, of laws, of you must do this, you must not do that. Of course, the Beatitudes in verses 1 to 12 are concerned with how we live, but they're not rules that you can exactly sort of keep or break, are they? You look at them. They're more kind of aspirations for the type of people that are in the kingdom of God. So so then the question comes, how does this all fit then with what has come before in the Old Testament? Because on the one hand, you might say, well, surely God has already told his people how he wants them to live. He gave them the law of Moses. He gave them the prophets who further interpreted the law. Why is any of this new teaching from Jesus needed at all? But then on the other hand, if really we only need Jesus, as people sometimes say, what's the point of the Old Testament? Do we really need both? Should we just forget about the Old Testament, as as many people of course do, even some Christians? Should we ignore it, dismiss it as outdated, irrelevant, like those strange UK laws? And if you're thinking, well, you know, does this really matter? It's all a bit beyond me. I don't really think this is relevant. Well, think about this. You see, you you already have a view on the place of the Old Testament in our lives today, if you're you're a Christian. 
Because let me ask you this, do you eat prawns from time to time? Do you enjoy a bit of shellfish or a bacon sandwich? Are you wearing clothing made out of two different materials, maybe a cotton and polyester mix? Do you work or play sport on Saturdays? Do you tolerate the odd bit of mildew in your bathroom? Without even thinking of calling a priest to inspect it. See, we need to know, if we're doing these things and others like them, we need to know why that is okay now, if it is okay. When God told the Israelites in the Old Testament it was not okay. So those are some of the questions and issues that we might have. And of course the issues weren't all that different for Jesus in the first century. He faced similar questions, you see. The people wanted to know, as he burst onto the scene in a Jewish context, they, they wanted to know, are you doing a new thing, Jesus? Are you just abandoning everything that came before and starting something new? How does what you're doing now fit with all of God's plans and promises from the past? Think of how the Pharisees and others criticised Jesus when he healed on the Sabbath or allowed his disciples to pick corn. They wanted to know, are you here to start something new or are you going to continue what has come before? And we're going to see, actually, the answer to both of those questions is yes. Yes, there's something new here. And yes, this is a continuation of what came before. Now, the headline in these verses is <coughs> verse 17. And that gives us our first heading, if you look on the, um, on the sheet. Jesus fulfills the law and the prophets. So, um, verse 17 first, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now, the law that Jesus is talking about is the law of Moses, the first five books of the Bible. And the prophets are the big guys like Isaiah and Jeremiah and the little guys like Hosea and Amos. And on top of that, taken together, the, the, the law and the prophets is also a way of just talking about the whole Old Testament. So not just the specific bits that you might identify, but we just, it's just sort of an umbrella term for everything that's come before. And look at what Jesus is not saying here. He's not abolishing what came before. <clears throat> but neither is he saying that he's simply affirming what came before, as if he's just one more prophet in the long list of prophets. He's come to fulfil the law and the prophets. Now, what does fulfil mean? Well, it means very simply to fill out or fill in. Now, think of when an order is fulfilled by a shop or a business. You know, there was a piece of paper which said what was needed. A new washing machine is required. And then the washing machine uh, turns up one day, and that day the order is fulfilled. And there is that sense that Jesus is the one that the Old Testament was waiting for. So he is the perfect king who's come to rule in his kingdom. And so he fulfills that expectation of the law and the prophets. He fleshes it out, literally. And more than that, he also fills it in by restoring the law to its original purpose. Now, it may surprise you to hear that when we lived uh, in Chesham before, I used to own a smart car. Now, I know, those, those little, little cars you see driving around, two-seaters, absolutely fantastic. People used to ask me how on earth I fit in one of those. Uh, but I tell you what it is, it's, they're brilliant because they're half a big car. You just take a big car, chop the back off, you've got a smart car. And uh, they're just, they're, they're superb. Um, 
But for a long time, I had a little problem with the tyres, because basically every few weeks, the front tyres lost a lot of their air. They went almost flat, and I'd got them checked, and there was nothing wrong with them in particular, no puncture. It got something to do with the seals. Um, but basically what happened was every couple of weeks, I started to notice that the car wasn't handling so well, and I, uh, left, if I left it even longer, I found the uh, steering was getting really heavy, and then I'd have to get my pump out, fill up the tyres with air, and then it was fantastic again. Now, somebody else, sadly, now owns the car. London isn't the kind of place you bring two cars to. I did actually replace the tyres before uh, selling it, and I discovered that that kind of solved the problem, so whatever the issue was. But what are you doing when you fill up a car tyre with air? You are restoring it to its original purpose. See, without air inside, tyres don't work properly. They're, They're dangerous even. When you fill them again... They are restored. You see, that is what Jesus is doing with the law. The rest of this chapter, as we'll see, is taken up with him arguing with what has come before, and especially with the Pharisees' own interpretation of what has come before. And we'll look at the first example of that in in a bit. But there's there's a repeated refrain through the rest of the chapter. I wonder if you can see what it is if you look down. He says, You have heard that it was said, but I tell you. And in each case, he shows how the Pharisees have reduced God's law to a series of achievable commands, a kind of tick-box list. So they've flattened the tire, in other words. I've never murdered anyone, so I'm okay. And Jesus is saying, no, let me show you the original intention of the law. Let me inflate it for you again. It's about your heart attitude. It's not just about whether you've physically murdered somebody, but whether you've ever wished someone dead in your heart out of anger. Now, we'll see some more of that in a bit. But but Jesus is fulfilling the law by filling it out, returning it to its original intention, and in the process showing that the Pharisees have completely missed the point. So what about us then? Because are we sometimes tempted to reduce the Christian life to a series of achievable tasks. You know, as long as I tick the box for going to church, saying the old prayer, giving a bit of money, stay out of prison, you know, I'm in with God. I'm upright and respectable. See, if that's our attitude, we are flattening the tire. And as Jesus makes clear again and again in his run-ins with the Pharisees, it's dangerous, it's heading for disaster, because you cannot make yourself right with God by ticking off a list of rules. Realising that Jesus has come to fulfil the law will mean that we, that we realise a far deeper righteousness is now required than the Pharisees were ever prepared to admit. That's what Jesus means in verse 20. If you look, the kingdom of heaven is about a righteousness that surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Not ticking the box, but giving our whole selves, which the rest of the Sermon on the Mount will spell out. But still then, what what does this mean for all those Old Testament commands? Well, the middle verses in this paragraph help us to answer that. So look at verses 18 and 19. They tell us that while Jesus has fulfilled the law that came before, the law still matters in a different way from before. The law still matters in a different way from before. The second 
principle we need to see here. Not the smallest letter will disappear, he says, until heaven and earth disappear. In other words, until he returns one day in the future. So what does this mean then? You know, an obvious question is, well, if, if, it, if none of it is, will disappear, should we then be avoiding prawns and pork and so on? Well, the thing is that this isn't the only thing that Jesus says about the law. Later in the Gospel, Jesus has an encounter with the Pharisees where they complain that his followers don't obey the laws about ceremonial washing and so on. And Jesus says this, nothing that enters a person can make them unclean. And what is implied there, and actually Mark's Gospel spells this out properly, what's implied there is that by saying this, Jesus declared all food clean. In other words, there's a sense in which some of the details of the law are not binding on God's people now because the one that the law pointed to has come. And so when we read verse 19, where Jesus says, uh, doing what is commanded um, still matters, it matters that we do that, Jesus is saying that you need to keep the law, but the thing is, keeping it now now that he's come, will look completely different from how it looked before he came. I was trying to think of a way of explaining, explaining this, and I think the, the best way I can think of is to think about the plans for a building. So in the stage when a building is being built, the plans are absolutely vital. They need to be followed to the letter. Every brick must be in place, every measurement just right, because otherwise the whole thing falls down. But what happens when the thing that the the plans point to has come. In other words, the building is complete. Are the plans then useless? Do you just throw them away? Well, actually, the plans for the building are still really useful in helping you find your way around the building and help you use the building, see how it works. But it's different, isn't it? It's a different use, different significance. So if there was a regulation about wearing hard hats in the plans, well, you don't need that anymore because the building is finished. The uh, plans for the, uh, the, the boiler room are, and the details of where all the pipes go. I'll, I'll let you, don't re- you don't really need to know the details. You, you, you want to know that they're there. You want to know that it works. But you don't need to be well-versed in exactly how, how everything uh, works. So, you know, it's just, in one sense, it's the same with bits of Leviticus that tell you exactly how to sacrifice your bull and what to do with all the entrails. Now, those bits, we still need to know those bits. We need to know they're there. We need to know um, that because, because they tell us how holy God is. They tell us this is a God you can't mess with. You can't just waltz into his presence and assume that he'll accept you in spite of your sin. But they also, beyond that, point to a greater sacrifice. They point to Jesus' sacrifice once and for all. And so really it's his sacrifice we need to focus on and that, that, the, the, the Levitical ones just point forwards to that. So we don't need to pay the same attention to them that those Old Testament believers would have needed to. Do you see how that works? The plans still stand, but the way they are used is different. Something like the electrical wiring in a, in a building, that would be different, isn't it? Because you still really need to know where all the electrical wiring is if you're going to use the building. So it becomes a much more immediate thing that you need to know about. 
So the point is you can't give a one-size-fits-all explanation of how each of the bits of the plans is relevant today. It's different depending on each bit of what it is and what its function was then and how that translates into the function now that the one that the, bit of the plans pointed to has come. And that's how it is with Jesus, you see. There's no one-size-fits-all explanation for what you do with the different bits of the law. You take it on a case-by-case basis, but there are principles you can apply. It's all still relevant, but in different ways from before. It still matters. That's what Jesus is saying. So, okay, what does this mean for us? Well, do people ever ask you if you take the Bible literally? It's the kind of question people ask, or, you know, I don't like those kind of Christians. They, oh, they're sort of literal Christians. I don't, I, I, I don't find that word literal very helpful. What I want to say to people is, I want to, I want to tell you that I take the Bible seriously. Take the Bible seriously because it's all the word of God. But telling you, saying you take it literally doesn't really tell you anything, doesn't really help because, well, the Psalms say the trees will clap their hands when the Lord returns. Well, do trees literally have hands? Is that what it means? Well, no, of course they don't. It's poetry. You, you, need, to, you need to understand what it's trying to say, the genre in which it's written. But it's still making a serious and true point. It still needs to be heard and taken seriously. And so it's much better to say, well, you know, how seriously do you take the Bible? I take the Bible as seriously as Jesus did. And we can see what he made of the Bible here in Matthew 5 as well as in other places. I take it as seriously as Jesus did. So when it comes to the Old Testament, it's like the plans for the house. And when the house has been built, the plans for the house are relevant and useful, but not all in exactly the same way. And then another thing people often say is this, you might have heard this, well, aren't you being inconsistent then if you say that it's okay to eat prawns and wear clothing from two different types of fabric, but you insist, for example, on maintaining that the proper place for sexual relations is between a man and a woman in marriage to one another. You know, you're just, you're just picking and choosing the bits that you want, you Christians. That's what the sort of thing people say, isn't it? It's quite a common objection. But we can see the beginnings of an answer to that from what we've seen this morning. You see that it's more complicated than simply whether or not you decide to take particular in the verses in the Old Testament literally or whatever. You have to think of it as the plans for the house. And it seems that the New Testament tells us that the food laws and the sacrificial laws in the Old Testament have a different purpose within those plans from the purpose of what... The, the same parts of the Bible tell us about human relationships and marriage and, and, and things like that. They've got a different role, and so we listen to them differently, and we see what the whole Bible makes of them in order to understand what that means for Christians today. Now, I know that's a subject that's not straightforward, and it, it may well be painful for, for some here for, for different reasons, but... See, if Jesus is saying anything in these verses, he's saying this. He's saying the life of the kingdom puts huge radical demands on all areas of our lives. Not merely our view of human relationships, and we'll come back to those next week, as you'll see in the, in the following verses. But actually, the life of the kingdom puts radical demands on our hearts, our tongues, greed, what we do with our money, how we respond when people hurt us. In all these things and more, our temptation is always to flatten the tire and to say, oh, it doesn't, it doesn't, it, it, you know, the, the, what God is calling us to isn't really 
that difficult. It doesn't really mean that. But Jesus says, if you look, verse 20, unless our righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. And we can see that now finally in the worked example that Jesus gives us in verses 21 to 26. So let's look at that to sort of see what he means in in practice. So worked example, no place for misplaced anger. So can you see here, Jesus is spelling out how he fulfills the law. You have heard it that it was said, do not murder. And it's there on the, on the wall behind us, isn't it, with the Ten Commandments. And most of us, I guess, sit here and think, well, I haven't murdered anybody. Well done me. I'm okay. I don't need rescuing like people who actually murder people. And Jesus is saying, if you think like that, you're just flattening the tire. But Jesus has come to fulfil the law, to take it back to the principle that lies behind the law and to the heart rather than just the action. And the, the law against murder is really about anger. That's what he's saying. Can you see that in these verses? Verse 22, that's where murder starts. It's about intention. Now, in fact, I'm, I'm not a lawyer, but that, that is what technically distinguishes murder from manslaughter or other types of killing, isn't it? It's the intention to take the life of someone else without lawful cause, and it, it begins with anger. Anger is the root, and murder is just one expression of it. So he says, verse 22, well, that, that in itself, just the anger, will lead to judgment. And the idea here in, in these verses isn't to sort of distinguish between different types of anger and their respective punishments and these sort of verbal abuse, you know, racker and you fool. Well, actually, those things, they they basically mean the same thing in the original. Um, But the the point is to say murderous anger brings judgment. And it's helpful that Jesus gives us the context of murder because it's clear from Jesus' own life that not all anger is wrong. It's quite important to say that sometimes, isn't it? Not all anger is wrong. Think of the way that he drove out the moneylenders out of the temple. You know, he, was, he was righteously angry with something that was against God. And there are times when human anger is a, is a right and proper response to injustice, provided it's expressed in the right way. But this isn't about that. This is about Um, explosive, self-righteous, how dare you do that to me, I'm going to give you what's coming to you, that kind of anger. And Jesus gets practical about two real-life situations, at least real life for them in that world, and we can see what it means for us as well. Offering a gift at the altar and going to court. Religious duty doesn't trump human relationships, Jesus is saying. So if you're going to offer a gift at the altar, well, you need to make sure you're right with your neighbour first. Now, what does that mean for us? Well, we've got an example right in front of us now. Holy communion is completely different from offering a gift at the altar. It's not a sacrifice. It's a remembrance meal. It's the Lord's table. It's not an altar. But it's no surprise, is it, that Paul warns the Christians in Corinth, in 1 Corinthians, about sharing in that meal when they're not right with their neighbour. That's why we often remind each other that we need to be at peace with one another before we receive the bread and the wine, as we'll be doing later. Make sure that we're right with one another, because that's an expression of our being right with God. Reconciliation, heart issues, really matter. 
And it's the same with courts. He says, you know, make every effort to be reconciled before you get there. Settle if you possibly can. Now, of course, there will be situations where you cannot be reconciled with the person beforehand, either in the case of the, well, his example of the altar and just being reconciled generally to your brother or in the specific case of going to court. Sometimes whatever you try and do, it doesn't work. There's a verse in the second reading that we heard that is really helpful here. Paul is doing the equivalent of the Beatitudes there in Romans chapter 12. He's laying out the life of the kingdom. And there was just one point in the reading where he says, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. As far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. In other words, if there's anything you can do at all, anything at all to make peace in a situation, well, take the initiative and do it. In Matthew 18, Jesus says, if you're wronged, go and tell your brother or sister and get it sorted. Here in Matthew 5, Jesus tells it the other way round. Do you see? If you have wronged someone else, if your brother or sister has something against you, go and get it sorted with them. So do you see what Jesus is saying? If you put those two things together, it's not about who did what or who should make the first move. God is a God of reconciliation. The kingdom of God is a place of peace. So as far as it depends on you, whether you're the one in the wrong or the one who's been wronged, if you can see there's a problem, make the first move. That's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Don't wait. Now, of course, it takes two to reconcile. You can have every intention to make things right between you and somebody else, and it won't always be possible. So you may still end up in court, or you may still end up unreconciled for a time. But the point all along is Jesus re-inflates the tyre is to get back to the heart. It's not just about the actions. It's not just about the things you can tick off the list and say, yep, I've done it. No, Jesus says it's about what's going on in your heart. Do you have an attitude that is ready to be reconciled, to make things right? See, the worst thing we can do with these verses is to rip them out of context and turn them back into a rigid law. So we say, oh, look, it says here, Christians must always settle. Whatever happens, never go to court. Someone might say, look, it says it right here in verse 25. But actually, that's deflating the tyre again, isn't it? So we love those tick-the-box laws where we, can, where we can just sort of say, we've, you know, we're doing this, look, it says it here, done. Don't have to worry about it. No, Jesus is saying, life is complicated. Life in a fallen world is messy. And in, the, in, the, in response to all that, Jesus is painting here a picture of a mouth-watering kingdom where we live at peace. Because wouldn't you love to live in a world where there were no arguments, no litigation, no falling out? Well, of course, we all would. We all would. And so Jesus is saying, well, you, if you're a disciple of Jesus, as far as it depends on you, do all that you can to be a peacemaker. Remember that verse, verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers. Pursue peace, not anger, at all costs. So is there a phone call you need to make? An email to arrange to meet up with somebody? Someone with whom you could make the first move to reconcile, even if you think really it's up to them. You know, they, they're the one who's done so much to hurt me. And that can be really painful. It can be really, really difficult. 
and we need all the help of God's people around us. It's good to talk these things through. It's good to pray with people to work these things through. The kingdom of God is a place of peace. It's a place where whichever side of the situation we're on, we make and take the first move. Rather, you know, otherwise we just sit there and think, well, I, you know, I haven't murdered them, so I should get some credit for that. Jesus says, no, it's about the heart. And if we're harboring anger and bitterness here in the heart, then we're avoiding addressing the real problem. That is what the life of the kingdom looks like. Now, it's a high bar, isn't it? We might be sitting here feeling fairly sort of condemned by what we read here. I'm sure each of us will in different ways as we measure up Jesus' standards of what the kingdom looks like and compare our own lives with that. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, another time that Jesus said something like that, his his disciples looked at him in, in desperation and said in so many words, well, if that's the standard, who then can be saved? And as we ask that question in response to verses like this, that will drive us back, of course, to the cross. To Jesus, who perfectly lived the life of the kingdom, who denied himself, who took up his cross and died so that we who regularly fail to live this life in so many ways might nevertheless be part of his kingdom where we don't naturally belong but where we're welcomed with open arms when we simply trust in Jesus, where we're given the Holy Spirit who will enable us to begin to live this kingdom life, falteringly, step by step, messing up regularly, but free to fail because we're safe in the love of God. Now, as always, I'm um, happy to chat things through if this uh, raises particular issues in your life that you want to talk about. Uh, Just grab me afterwards, we can make a time to do that. But all all of us need to to listen to this and and realise We need to hear Jesus saying, don't be fooled by the cheap version of kingdom life, of tick-the-box law-keeping. The law still matters. But Jesus has fulfilled the law, and life in his mouth-watering kingdom means committing to live his way in all things, with all our hearts. Let's pray now. Father, we come before you with all our weaknesses, all our sin, all the ways that we do not measure up to this kingdom life. We, we confess those things to you. We're sorry for the grief that that brings to you and to those around us. If we're struggling with 
hurt that others have done to us, we pray that you would help us to find a way forwards. Knowing that your kingdom is a place of peace. Knowing that you are a God of reconciliation who took the first step, the first, made the first move coming into the world in Jesus so that we might be reconciled to you. Help us to reflect that in our relationships with one another, with the world around us. Where we're reducing your requirements to a, a list of rules we can keep and be satisfied with ourselves, help us to turn from that. To see how you fulfil the law's requirements. To put our trust in you, to be forgiven, to have a fresh start, to receive the Holy Spirit so we might begin to live this kingdom life falteringly, weakly, and yet trusting always in Jesus. Please strengthen us in all these things. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.